Here on Gadget Lab, we dive deep into the tech universe, tackling questions like, is giving companies access to your genetic material a good idea? And are the latest phone releases really that different than the last ones? We want to help you make informed decisions about what is worth your attention. And here's something that is undeniably worth your time, a digital subscription to Wired. Lucky for you, we are giving Gadget Lab listeners an exclusive discount, 20% off an annual subscription to Wired. Just visit Wired.com and use the promo code GL20 to get 20% off a digital subscription. Use GL20 to get exclusive access to stories on the latest innovations like AI, deepfakes, and VR, as well as today's most talked about people in technology. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Lauren. Mike. Lauren, can you imagine doing your job without some type of cloud-based software? Yes, I could. I would go live in a cottage in a fairy (laughs) forest and use my quill and ink to just write tortured things on paper that no one will ever read. Right. Well, I mean, you couldn't do this job without... No, I could not do this job working for Wired magazine (laughs) without accessing the cloud. Yeah, I can't. And I can't imagine going back to even, you know, trading floppies or whatever we were doing back then. Yes, that and FTP. That is what we were doing. Oh my gosh, and peer-to-peer. Peer-to-peer. We'd share music on Napster, Mike. (laughs) All right. Well, what if I told you Mm -hmm. that there are apps available right now that let multiple people all edit a document at the same time and Mm -hmm. that they're doing this without the cloud? Without the cloud. Without the cloud. Say more. Well, computers are magic. I don't know if you've heard, Uh but we're going to learn all about it today. I can't wait. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I am Michael Calori. I'm a senior editor at Wired. And I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired. We're also joined today by Wired staff writer Greg Barber. Hi, good to be here. Hi, Great Greg. to have you on the show, Greg. And here in studio. I know. It's beautiful. <laughs> you guys have had some upgrades since I was last here. We have, thanks to Boone, our excellent producer. Well, yes. Welcome back. You're no longer you're no longer in a Zoom window. You're now actually in a chair. Yes. <laughs> Big upgrade. Today, we are talking about local-first computing. The term is probably new to you, but the concepts behind it might make sense to you. Local-first computing describes a type of software that lets you collaborate on files with people on other computers. I'm here at the office, and I'm typing into a document. You're across town at a coffee shop. You have the same document open on your computer, and you see all of my changes appear on your screen in real time. Sounds just like Google Docs, right? Mm-hmm and every other web-based collaboration tool. The approach of local-first computing is conceptually similar, but the way it works behind the scenes is quite different. Now, Greg, you have written a feature for Wired that is appearing online this week. People can read it on wired.com, and it is about the local-first computing movement. So you know all about this because you've been researching it and interviewing many of the people behind it. So we're hoping you can start the show by explaining to us how 
local-first computing is different from cloud-based computing that people are familiar with, like good old Google Docs and Slack and things like that. Yeah, yeah. So as you said, conceptually, it's actually going to be pretty similar for the average user of this kind of software. You know, it's, you're working on a text document or you're working on some kind of image file, and you know, similar to Google Docs or Photoshop, you're making edits, you're making changes, and you might be doing that with other people. But in this case, the idea is that you can do a lot of work offline without any inter internet connection to uh, another person. And you can make a whole bunch of changes. And then when you come back, this kind of magical little alchemy happens where all the changes resolve from you and whoever else is editing the document into this result that makes sense. And again, you know, that doesn't sound all that different from Google Docs. Um, I think in part because we're pretty used to just having an internet connection at all times. You might occasionally get that little uh, dialogue that comes up on your Google Docs if you do go offline that says, okay, this is the tab where you can make the changes and then, you know, everything else is suspended. Um, but basically it's depending on having a copy of that file stored in a server somewhere. It's one of Google's servers, probably in some data center in the desert of Oregon. And the changes are all being made there. Whereas in this case, the changes are being made on every copy of the file that is distributed among the people who are editing it. And like you said, Mike, that involves some pretty tricky math and computing that was actually developed a long time ago, but didn't really get much use and is now seeing a resurgence. Is this technology or this protocol using the big cloud services still, like Google Cloud or Amazon Web Services? Uh, a little different from that. So actually, you are, in this case, peer-to-peer. Uh, -peer. So you're... Okay. So basically, the file is only existing on your computer and the computer of the other people who have access to that file who might be collaborating on it. And then rather than keeping some sort of master copy on, say, a Google server, instead, when you all are making changes and you sync up and you have an internet connection, then the changes are happening on everyone's computer. So it's this almost like, like I, I compared in the piece to um, the quantum entanglement, like atoms that need to always be in the exact same state, whether they're you know halfway across the universe from each other. Um, the changes will always resolve on each computer into the exact same result. And hopefully it's an intuitive result and that's, that's where it gets a little bit tricky. So what you're talking about is decentralization. Exactly. Which is a, a word that pops up a lot in computing these days. Uh, how does local first computing fit into the discussion around decentralization. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a really long history to this, of course. This goes back to basically the origins of the internet, where, you know, from the start, there was this open protocol, the internet. It's pretty great. Heard of know. it. <laughs> Heard of everyone it. Can, uh, can participate. Everyone can, you know, build things on top of it, build different kinds of technology. Um, and yeah, the magic of it is that unlike prior technology, like our telephone lines, which are owned by telephone companies and which regulate the use of, of those wires. Um, yeah, anybody could participate and, and people were really excited about this. But from the beginning, there were people who thought, hey, actually, maybe some companies should get involved and they should you know, play a role in sort of managing how internet traffic is moving. Um, so this is all to say there's a really long history to basically fighting for the decentralization of the internet. And this became particularly true as people started building applications on top of the internet. You know, people started basically allowing the internet to do things for us. Like we could you know, have applications to check your email or, you know, talk to other people. Um, mm -hmm. You, know, you describe it in the piece in this really beautiful way where you say a lot of the tech companies have built these gorgeous 
gardens and yeah, then, yeah. And, and so enticed us to, to go into the gardens and then they started building the walls around them. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's particularly true in the early 2000s with the beginning of the cloud computing revolution. You know, it starts off with Salesforce, basically white labeling um, servers uh, to people, uh, you know, and they could put their own, their own uh, branding on them and, and interact with their customers that way. And then you've got Flickr, you've got Gmail, you've got all sorts of different applications that are basically based on this model of having really great software that does a lot of useful things, but then it's rooted in needing to interact with a company's servers. So as that's happening, I think there's the, the sort of voices that have been calling for internet decentralization have been getting louder um, because, like I said, this does sort of tie into a business model that, as you said, Lauren, kind of pulls people into these wall gardens, keeps them there, keeps their data you know, stuck on certain servers. And um, yeah, some people are kind of pushing back on that. And so there are movements like the decentralized web movement. That's, um, uh, you know, Tim Berners-Lee is, is, a, is a big force in that. You know, there's the kind of crypto-related stuff, the, the <laughs> Web3, um, which is a word that I've not used very much recently. Um, <laughs> so I think you could think of, of this kind of programming, this local first, sort of in that tradition. And in fact, as technical roots really reach back in that tradition as well. Um, for people who are part of earlier movements. Yeah. So this more recent movement towards local first computing, you discovered through discussions on Hacker News, you ended up chasing down some of the folks who are involved in this. Um, tell us about them and, and, and what was their motivation for, for starting this movement or restarting this movement? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this has been um, a pretty recurring kind of viral subject on Hacker News, which is this website that, as I'm sure many listeners are, are familiar with, um, you know, where a lot of you know, engineers go and, and post interesting things and they get upvoted and more people read them. Um, and so Local First has been a big force there. Whenever something new comes out, it seems to just kind of shoot right to the top uh, of the page. Um, and um, so I actually came across this, oh, gosh, I think four years ago now is before the pandemic. And um, there was a kind of what I kind of sort of come to think of as like a manifesto posted by a group of researchers, um, primarily based at this private lab called Ink and Switch, led by a software engineer named uh, Peter Van Hardenberg. He was a former engineer at Heroku, which was this startup that, that became quite large, um, based actually in spinning up cloud servers for for people mm -hmm. um, very much at the heart of the the cloud computing revolution it was eventually purchased by by Salesforce and they did some time there and then they were working with another computer scientist named Martin Kleppmann. Um he's originally from Germany um, had kind of taken a tour as well through the startups and and some of the big companies like LinkedIn um, but came out really interested in exploring these old ideas and peer-to-peer -peer software um, and among them was a concept called a CRDT, or a conflict-free replicating data type. Um, <laughs> conflict-free replicating data type. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And the, the, the when you break it down, the, that sort of garbled jumble of words um, makes some intuitive sense. Um, basically, it refers to a type of a data structure, so like ways of, kind of moving around data and organizing it in a computer program that can be merged together in ways that are conflict-free. So that's going back to those computers where you have, you know, you have many different computers and they all have a copy of the file and they need to figure out a way to 
take your changes, Lauren, and, and my changes and, and your changes, Mike, and make them all resolve into the same thing. So you want Without to be conflict-free. Yeah. And you also want to be, well, replicated. The, the, you know, the three of us all have this file. So um, that was developed primarily by a French uh, computer scientist named Mark Shapiro. Um, he was working in the mid-2000s, kind of at the, the, the very height of this cloud computing revolution. He was interested primarily in collaboration software. And at the time, there wasn't really great internet connectivity. So this was a pretty, like, just big problem generally in computing. He was himself a peer-to-peer advocate, but, um, but it wasn't something that, like, the cloud had really figured out either. He had a funny moment where he was, he was talking about working on this, and it felt like a very niche subject. And, you know, he was toiling away, and he was working on CRDTs and this, this way of, you know, merging things offline. And he was like, nobody's going to be interested in this. And then, like, a couple weeks later... He says, boom, Google Docs appears. <laughs> but um, but oh, Google was not using CRDT. No, no. So they're still relying on Google servers. So you can go offline. You can do your thing. You know, there's some limited capabilities for multiple people being offline. But but you're, you're going back to a Google server when you want to merge those changes. Whereas in this case, there's no server between the, you know, between the three of us. But he, he probably saw that as a clear indication that the world is ready for this. Exactly. Yeah. yeah like collaboration software is here. Google's doing it. Google, like everybody, it's 2006, like 2007, like people love Google. Um, <laughs> they're very excited with, you know, every, every new Google product that's coming out. Let us not forget about Zoho and Zoho Office also at the same time. Oh, I'm not familiar. Oh, they do the same thing. Okay. They make an office suite. Got it. Collaborative. Yeah. Got it. Um, so yeah, so so basically he develops this. People aren't all that interested. You know, the cloud computing people are like, eh, that's not not particularly useful for our purposes because we want our servers anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, it's kind of forgotten for a while. Um, but then Martin picks it up. He's um, He'd sort of been through the startup grind and he's now working as a research scholar at the University of Cambridge. And it's um, in the mid 2010s, and um, starts looking at this algorithm and thinks it's really interesting. Like, how how do you actually do these kind of complicated merges? Um, but he realizes as well that it's not particularly useful to engineers like himself. It's just too inefficient. It's like not integrated in any way with all the different tools that um, have grown up around cloud computing. So he sets about basically just trying to implement it himself. Like he wants to code out this algorithm in a way that people can actually use and start building apps. All right, well, let's take a break and we'll come right back with some more. This podcast is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Each episode features insight you won't find anywhere else from the center of the conversation surrounding emerging technologies like AI. Right now on the podcast, you can hear a special episode where Brad Smith lays out Microsoft's vision for a vibrant marketplace driving the new AI economy. To hear more, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Reid Hoffman. And I'm Aria Finger. If you're interested in learning about how technology and humanity can come together to make a better future, then possible is for you. We invite ambitious builders and deep thinkers like Trevor Noah, Kara Swisher, Sam Altman, and so many more. Help us sketch out the brightest version of the future and what it will take to get there. If you want to be part of the future today, then subscribe to Possible wherever you listen to podcasts.
Greg, something you note in your story is that all of these applications that are out there now that are being demoed, they're all pretty young. They don't have a lot of the features that we would expect from mature cloud-based apps, especially the ones that they're competing with. So there's sort of an artisanal homesteady feel to a lot of them. It must be hard to live your life the way that you are currently living it using these apps with all of their limitations. And I feel like doing so probably requires a level of patience and dedication that most people don't have. Yeah, definitely. And this is a problem that's, I think, been dogging peer-to-peer software as long as it's been around. Mark Shapiro, um, the researcher who came up with CRDTs, I asked him at one point, you know, what does your life look like online as a peer-to-peer sort of hardliner, as he puts it? And he's like, well, basically, I just ign- I avoid the internet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he avoids the internet as we know it because everything he does is peer-to-peer? Uh, so basically, there aren't alternatives available to him. Like, he would... He would like to be out with his friends using a bunch of peer-to-peer software, but everyone else got tired of it. And um, he's basically, you know, he's he would basically be alone if he were trying to, you know, communicate peer-to-peer with people online. You know, nothing really took off. And I think it's it's right as you say, Mike, that it typically does involve trade-offs and involves um, more user difficulty. Um, you know, you lose features. I mean, the cloud is just super, super useful. That's mm-hmm. why, it, you know, at the core of this, there, of course, there are the business models that, you know, cause the cloud to grow. But at the core of this, cloud computing is just a very useful technology. Yeah. Um, it's 20 years old and has like hundreds of billions of dollars thrown behind it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's basically at the root of almost all software that we're using on a day, daily basis now. Um so that's part of it, that the technology is just very new and it's hard to build apps still on top of this. But then, you know, they really hope that down the line, because there's a sort of solid theoretical foundation for how to make these apps efficient and, you know, keep the servers out of the equation, that actually you can build interesting software that maybe goes beyond some of the capabilities of the kinds of applications that we use every day. So one example of that would be... Um, Clevin has recently been working on a prototype of an app that's for rich text editing. So it's basically Google Docs. Um, (laughs) And um, but his idea for it is sort of that it would be closer to something like Git, like the the, the software that computer programmers use to share their code. In that case, you know, there's this idea of sort of pushing and pulling changes and checking things in, checking things out. Yeah. Yeah. And you can there's version control so you can see you know, the various versions that people are trying to add to the the common code base. And, um, and you know, as a computer programmer, he finds that very useful. He thinks that, you know, if you can kind of see all these different versions and that you can spend a lot of time offline doing your own thing and then you bring it back, that that's actually like a, sort of a richer program than Google Docs, um, which is, you know, just relying on us, you know, tinkering with the same copy, essentially. I have a couple of questions that might be annoyingly pragmatic. Um, Okay, so the first is that a major part of having a robust, optimized cloud experience is having lots of engineers who are constantly working on maintaining and improving the infrastructure. And big tech companies tend to have the resources to hire those engineers. So in Kletman's vision, who are the people who are ultimately maintaining these peer-to-peer, local-first computing services? And my second question is, all right, so how is this new version of the cloud going to be monetized? Because we know that's coming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so to answer... Senator, your... we sell ads. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, 
Um, so to answer your first question, I think they're they're really hoping that they can peel people away from the existing kind of dominant cloud computing world. And it was interesting speaking with those folks kind of during and after this big boom in cryptocurrency. And there was this moment. So I should say that they're not particularly big fans of cryptocurrency themselves, um, despite there being some some overlap in terms of like the terminology around decentralization. Oh, interesting. And like that. Why is um, that? So I think two aspects. Um, one is that just technologically is actually in some ways the opposite, because while local first is meant to be offline, cryptocurrency relies on a blockchain. So you're always tethered to the technology. Mm-hmm. And it's very energy intensive. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and, you know, kind of controlled in this sort of mm-hmm. monopolistic way by, you know, whoever kind of has the most cryptocurrency on the network or the most computing power, um, you know, and we'll get back to the money, but you know, I think that they find <laughs> crypto um, in general to be sort of money motivated. Like it's not, it's not necessarily for the improvement of software. It's more about, okay, how can you, you know, monetize the, the cryptocurrency that's flowing around the network? Um, the apps are kind of secondary. Um, but it did offer this interesting lesson for the local first folks in terms of, you know, how do you peel away those engineers from the cloud computing firms? And, you know, I think it showed that people are really interested in these principles of decentralization and data ownership and, you know, the kinds of things that are enabled if you're not worrying about cloud computing anymore. So that was kind of heartening. It also kind of showed the way of like, okay, like, how do you, how do you generate like a little bit of hype around this? And, you know, I think even, you know, something I talked about in the piece is that like, even the phrase local first software is like itself sort of a marketing term. Like it's a way of projecting values and, and you know, um, the sort of viral hacker news posts. Like this is all kind of part of building some kind of movement where like, this is interesting. It's like technically interesting, but it's also sort of philosophically interesting and yeah. something that you want to join. It's anti-establishment. Yeah. It's altruistic. It's farm to table. It's farm to table. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, it's more pure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then I think that kind of speaks to your second question, which is, that those things can often conflict with making money and that we still have this dominant paradigm of you go to a venture capital firm, you get a bunch of money, and then they want their money back times whatever <laughs> magnitude, you know, in, oh, dare they. <laughs> in, a few, in a few years. Um, but, you know, and I, one could say how dare they in terms of the scale that's, you know, like the scale of the monetization that's required. Um, so, so that is a tension for them. And it's honestly one that, if I'm being totally honest with you guys, like, I didn't feel was fully answered in the reporting. Mm. You know, and I think in part that can be excused because it is early and, you know, Kleppman and, and uh, Peter Van Hardwerk, um, you know, like they're, they're still in a position where they're working on implementing CRDTs and they're getting like voluntary contributions from companies that are interested in local first and, and things like that. But, you know, they're not seeking venture capital funding themselves. So, but at the same time, I think they recognize that somebody's going to have to do it. And, there is this question of like, okay, are the technical underpinnings of this enough to prevent people from reaching immediately for these traditional business models? Like, can you sort of let the technology lead in terms of like, it's, it's pointing to this future where you don't hoard people's data. Um, will people sort of rely on that technology to make what their opinion would be the right choices um, around monetization? That said, too, I mean, I think that their their main argument is that, like, they're going to make really good software. It's going to be more useful than Google Docs. It's going to, you know, recruit users and, and sort of stand for itself. Um, and I think that's that's the big open question is, like, do do people kind of go for the old conveniences or do they do they get inspired to pick up something new that, 
might be truly more interesting or more useful than what came before it. I, I do love the vision of the the better internet. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're not talking about like going back to banging rocks together and rubbing sticks together to start fires. Like we're talking about, you know, using these great technologies to just build something that is better and maybe more private and more secure and more like friendly to our human existence. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) That's like giant libraries where everything about us is stored and used against us. Yeah. Yeah. And that's definitely true. And something that I haven't mentioned is, you know, it does enable certain things that the cloud doesn't, um, for example, like end-to-end encryption, where like, Mm. if you're not relying on a server between you and me, then it's substantially easier in some ways to, you know, avoid prying eyes um, on our data. Again, you know, the the sort of general public, like, I don't know if, like, in some ways, like, end-to-end encryption can be, it, it should be a general use case, but it can be a little bit niche, too. Like, I don't know if it, like, reels people in in the, in the way that you might hope. Um, this is why everybody's flocking to Signal. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, not to throw shade at Signal. But, yeah, like, and to end No, like, we're all on Signal. If yeah, anyone has yeah. any tips, get in touch with us. Please. But, like, you know, end-to-end encryption is not, you know, it's not like a really big selling point for the general populace. It's a, a really big selling point for nerds like us. Yeah, yeah. And perhaps like in a suite of other additional great things that can come out of this, you know, yeah. it's, it's another selling point. Great. All right, Greg, this has been very fascinating. Thanks for coming on the show and talking all about your new feature about local first computing that everybody can read on Wired this week. Yeah, thanks for having me. And in studio, too. It's a local first Greg Barber. It really is. This (laughs) has been a fully peer-to-peer discussion. (laughs) But stick around for recommendations. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. It's Neil. I've got some huge news. Decoder is moving to Mondays and Thursdays. We're adding a second episode of the show. On Mondays, we'll have our classic interviews with CEOs and other troublemakers. I think we're going to have to start having conversations about how do we pay those jobs that can't be done by AI. And on Thursdays, we'll be explaining big topics in the news with Verge reporters, experts, and other friends of the show. There's a new generation of people on the internet. Google search has always sucked for them. So, you know, there's no reason for them to be loyal. They can just go to TikTok. This is going to be really fun. I'm very excited about all this. So go subscribe wherever you get your podcasts now. All right, welcome back. Here's the last section of our show where we all go around the table and we offer our recommendations for things that listeners might be interested in enjoying. Greg, what is your recommendation? All right. Well, if you're in San Francisco, um, I'd like to recommend an exhibit that's at the SF MoMA right now. It's called The Visitors. It's by an Icelandic artist, uh, musician, whose name I'm going to butcher. I'm very sorry, but it's Ragnar Kjartansson. I had it pulled up on my laptop. Um, and um, so I went last weekend and it's basically a, uh, you go into a room and there's a whole bunch of screens around you. And each screen is sort of a portal into a different room in a giant house in upstate New York where Ragnar, I'm going to go with his first name. Um, <laughs> uh, he traveled with his friends um, and fellow musicians. Um, and they basically recorded a enormous um, just jam session between all of them, but they're each in their own room. They each have a single mic, a single camera. Um, It's just this amazing, yeah, this amazing thing unfolds where you just watch this kind of individual process of music making that's somehow happening across, like through the walls and through the floors of this house. And 
it's can they hard hear, to... can they hear each other do they have like monitoring they do yeah yeah okay. yeah so they can hear each other um but yeah it's just and it's an hour long i stayed for the full hour um Hap- was very lucky to to arrive right when it started. Um, can't help but see some local first um, allegories in it, um, <laughs> which honestly only occurred to me just now. Um, yeah, I would really recommend it. It's also often in New York. It's like shared between New York MoMA and SF MoMA and kind of trades between the two. But So beautiful. if you happen to live in the culturally inferior museum town of New York, yeah. then you can still see this thing that we lucky ones here in San Francisco yeah, get Yeah, it'll come back to you eventually. Okay. Always throwing shade in New York City. <laughs> well, that was sarcastic. Oh, okay. Because it seems you know, there's like a museum on every corner in New York. Yes. Or, or so I'm told. I've never been. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. It's a good recommendation. You. Have you ever heard of something called the Met? The Met? Yeah, if you work for Condé Nast, you have to know what the Met is. Is that like meta? Oh, my goodness. Like Facebook? Let's move on, please. <laughs> Lauren, what's your recommendation? Um, my recommendation, I, I wish it was more clever or unique, like Greg's recommendation, or even local. It's not. I have finally completed my Barbenheimer quest. <laughs> I went to go see Barbie. I did not see it back to back with Oppenheimer. We saw Oppenheimer together, Mike, a few weeks ago. Um, I saw Barbie last week. And... If you have not had the chance to see it yet and you're on the fence about it, I recommend it for the experience. Now, I'm going to say something that, if stripped out of context, would sound like a dig. I fell asleep during Barbie, <laughs> but I have good reason for that. Um, one, I was tired. <laughs> so <laughs> that's always a good reason to take a nap. Um, two, I went with a friend who wanted to go to the 1050 showing. I convinced this is Kara Swisher, by the way. Um, she's often known as like the most feared technology journalist out there. And like, you should just fear her in general. She's a person who wants to go to movies at 1050 at night. And then like, we'll still like go home afterwards and like call the cable company and yell at them and rearrange her furniture. Like while she's probably like, I don't know, yelling at Bob Iger too. Like I, so she wanted to go to a 1050 showing. We compromise. I said, no, I cannot stay up that late. We compromised. We went to an 850 showing. Still, I was very tired and the chairs were very comfortable. Um, I saw probably two thirds of Barbie. So I feel like I got the gist and I woke up just in time for the ending. So I saw how it concluded. I, I really enjoyed it. The parts that I was awake for. You were, I, you were entertained? I was entertained, And I'm glad I gave Greta Gerwig my money. Um, I think it's an incredible feat that she made this film. I found parts of it to be really humorous and touching. I thought that Ken's discovery of the patriarchy was honestly one of the funniest, darkly funny parts of the film. I also really loved Kate McKinnon's character. And Margot Robbie, as we all know, is a star. And yeah, I just think it touched on some really important themes of around feminism and the patriarchy and, and put it all in a Pepto-Bismol pink wrapper um, <laughs> that made it go down really easy. Nice. Yeah. That's my recommendation. Go see Barbie. Or at least if, you, if you're not going to go see it in the theaters, then then see it on demand. And take a nap. And take a nap. If you're Why tired. Not? You know, if you're tired from fighting the patriarchy, <laughs> you're going to need a nap. Okay. Mike, what's your recommendation? Uh, I'm going to recommend a podcast. Okay. A particular episode of a podcast that I've recommended in whole before a few years ago. It's called The War on Cars. And it's a podcast about uh, safe streets advocacy, right? 
they talk about cycling, they talk about pedestrian issues, they talk about the the difficulty that we have, particularly in North America, of breaking the car dominant culture and the problem that so many people live far away from places that they need a car to get to. And we have not solved that for them. So it's it, the podcast in general is very good. This new episode is an interview with Bob Sorokonich, who was the editor-in-chief of Jalopnik, uh, and before that was uh, the uh, a high-up a high up editor, like a masthead-level editor uh, at a very large uh, car magazine that is well-known. And Bob and the hosts of this show are basically in opposition on many things car, but they managed to have a really, really interesting conversation about why we are where we are with cars, like why SUVs have dominated the market, why cars just keep getting bigger, like what's the problem with EVs? Why can't we adopt EVs fast enough? Uh, where does all the marketing money go? Why do people spend so much marketing money to sell cars to people who don't necessarily need them? It's really fascinating. Uh, it's an hour. Um, this is, I think it's a Patreon episode that they liked so much that they released into their feed during their current vacation that they're on. They're on summer vacation right now. So uh, I would I would recommend if you have any interest in automotive journalism or in the car industry and how it works and sort of behind the scenes stuff, you got to check it out. It's really great. Sounds fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Also, the way you said that they they don't always agree on car uh, made me think about <laughs> Ken, because you know Ken beaches. That's what he does. Oh, they, he use, they use the word beach as a verb <laughs> in Barbie. I love that. So it just made me think like you know they talk about they car on the podcast. That's how they do it. I love that. Yeah, it's pretty good. Can we just take a moment, by the way, to read aloud a little note from a loyal fan? Oh, sure. So at the end of last week's show. We mentioned that someone had written and, and um, said something unkind, but also uh, grammatically incorrect, which we had to flag um, <laughs> as journalism and English majors. So um, following last week's episode, we got a lovely note from someone on Apple Podcasts named Yilish. Yilish, we don't know who you are, but we appreciate this. They said it was a great show. Been listening to the show for about two years. Thank you for your loyal listenership. Just listened to the Future of Hollywood episode, and I felt compelled to leave a review saying that all of the journalism majors and non-journalism majors at Wired are people who do know things about tech, exclamation point. We appreciate you. Uh, we love hearing your thoughts, all of you. So please leave us a review. That's great. Yeah. And I feel like this is a great episode to read it on because like what other podcasts this week are you going to hear mention of CRDTs and end-to-end -end <laughs> encryption and... Yeah. I mean, we love this stuff. We're skeptical <laughs> sometimes, but we love it. That's why we do what we do here at Wired. Oh, Greg, thanks so much for being here this week. Yeah, thanks for having me. So great to have you here, Greg. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you have feedback, you can find all of us on the social medias. Just check the show notes. Our producer is Boone Ashworth. We will be back next week. And until then, goodbye. Goodbye. Oh, I don't really like my recommendation, but that's why I'm kind of like. Um, I think it's a great recommendation. All right, it's just yeah. I'll just. I'll, I, I want to okay. hear. I want to hear what you have to say about Barbie. Okay. I'm Kentristed. <laughs> that made me laugh. Uh. <laughs> <laughs>
Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? Come on, of course you do. Introducing The Jordan Harbinger Show. The Jordan Harbinger Show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening, even inside your own brain. Jordan dives into the minds of fascinating people, from athletes, authors, and scientists, to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. From P. 